Today we are going to take a short detour. We're going to take a detour out of the Gospel of Mark. Yeah. So we're going to go to Philippians today and we're going to look at Philippians, a few verses from Philippians chapter 1. We will come back to our series in Mark's Gospel next week. And, and really we're getting very close to the end of that series, just a couple of chapters to go. But for today we are in Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. Verses 12 through 18, if you would listen for God's word to us today. And Paul writes this, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true. Some priests preach Christ out of envy or rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or from true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue yes. to rejoice. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Do any of you like the Rocky movies? Rocky movies, Rocky Balboa. Anyone? We got, got a few. Yeah, right. They're pretty good movies. The Rocky movies. Um, the Rocky movies. Uh, I, I like. I like them. You know. Um, Pretty much for the reason most people do, because, you know, you've got the underdog, Rocky, and somehow he always manages to win. And the Rocky movies, they've been, they have been being made for pretty much my entire life. The first, the first Rocky movie, it was, uh, it came out in 1976, so I was three years old when the first Rocky movie came out. And, and the last movie in the series... They're called the Creed movies. Creed 3 just came out this year. So for pretty much my entire life, Rocky movies have been being made. And, and some of them, some of them are better than others. But, you know, we, we like Rocky because he's this underdog who comes back to win. He, he has this ability to, to, to claim victory right there out of the, the jaws of defeat. And... You know, in some of the Rocky movies, if you're not familiar with them, Rocky doesn't really lose, but, but he loses by decision. And you know, you're like, he got, he got cheated there. He got gypped. He should have won. But you know, if you ever see a Rocky movie where he doesn't win, you know there's going to be another one, right? Because in the next one, he will, he will win. Um, so how does that happen? How is Rocky always so good how does he always how does he always win even though all the odds are against him well I'll tell you how Sylvester Stallone 
the, the actor who portrays Rocky Balboa, he actually wrote all the screenplays for the movies. And so because he wrote all the screenplays, he could always write himself in as, as the character who wins, right? That's how Rocky always wins. Now, now I, I share that because as we read Scripture, as we read the Old Testament and the New Testament from Genesis to Revelation, we see a storyline, the story of God, where at times it seems like God's story is on the verge of defeat, does it not? There are times when it seems like God's plan is, is going to fail, right? Yet God always finds a way to win. God always finds a way to the end, you know, because we believe in a God who created mankind, who created the entire universe, and it turns out he wrote the story, and God always wins in the end, you know, and and if you look at the, the story of God, the story of salvation history, starting in the Old Testament, you know that God called the people Israel. It was the, the descendants of Abraham, and He said, "I want you to be my people. You will be, you'll be my special people. Uh, I want to create a nation. I want to create a priesthood of men and women who will proclaim my name, so that all of the world will know that I am God." Yet Israel most of the time, disobeyed God, right? And they were oppressed by, by pagan nations. And at every turn, it seems that God's plan will meet with defeat, right? It's not going to work. But, but over and over again, God keeps working and working to preserve His people and to preserve His plan and to create a kingdom where His people will proclaim his name. And, and then we get to the New Testament. When we get to the New Testament, it, it's 400 years. After 400 years of silence and oppression for God's people, and then, and then once again, God steps in. God sends his only son, Jesus Christ, right? He was part of Israel, but he didn't just come to save Israel. He came to save the whole world from sin, from the enemies that were threatening God's plan. And in fact, the gospel itself, you know, it's a, it's a story of God, you know, of God snatching back victory out of the jaws of defeat. Um, even against death itself, he claims life out of the jaws of defeat of, of death. And, and so that's the story of God bringing, bringing light to life, bringing life from death claiming victory from defeat. And we see God always wins. And then, and then as we continue to look at the story of, of God's people, the story of salvation history, after Jesus has, he has died, He has been resurrected, He has ascended to the Father, then, then we see that God's people, there were people who believed. And so they went out to proclaim what had happened and to proclaim eternal life that, that could be found in the name of Jesus. But at every turn, at every turn, they faced opposition, or they faced persecution, or they faced difficulty, right? They faced imprisonment, death, they, they faced division in the body, they faced sin in the body, and yet God kept working. 
God kept working. The Spirit of God continued to move. The gospel continued to spread, not only in Jerusalem, not only in Judea, but to the ends of the known earth at that time. And, and, and then we get to the book of Revelation, and the book of Revelation against, against the power of Satan himself. We see that God wins in the end. God always wins. And so all of that, all of that's critical to understanding Philippians 1, 12 through 18, right? And as Paul was writing this letter to the Philippians, where was Paul? Paul was in jail. Paul was in jail, or as the text says, he was in chains. Now, why was he in jail? Paul was in jail for preaching the gospel. He was in jail on account of Christ. So, Paul had every reason to be thinking, you know, I've believed on Jesus. I've lined up with Jesus. I've made my whole life about proclaiming Jesus' name. And and now, here I am in jail. I'm facing loss, facing defeat, facing even death. Yet even so, Paul maintained a joy about him. If you read the book of Philippians, or if you're familiar with the book of Philippians, what you'll see is that the entire book just kind of oozes with the joy of the Spirit of God. It's full of joy because God knew best. I'm sorry, because Paul, rather, Paul knew best that even in the face of defeat, even in the face of seeming loss, guess what? God always wins. Are you picking up on a theme in this message today? Right. He always wins, even in the face of death and defeat. And, and Paul knows that even if he's sitting in jail, even if he's in, in, in chains, that even so, he's on the winning team. He is on the winning team, and he can proclaim over and over, I can rejoice I can rejoice. You, you can rejoice. We're on the winning team. You know, brothers and sisters, this morning, if you, if you know Jesus, if you know Jesus, then you can know this. You are on the winning team in terms of eternity. You are on the winning team. Think about that. Think about that. That means that no matter what happens to you in this life, No matter what opposition you may face, no matter what difficulties you may encounter, if you know Jesus Christ, you have eternal life and it is secure and nothing and no one can take that away. And if you know Jesus Christ, then you know that one day you will be among the multitudes worshiping at the throne of God in the new heavens and the new earth. You can know this. You are on the winning team even when you face opposition. God has a plan. God has a plan. And he will carry it out to create a kingdom of men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to know him and to worship him and to proclaim his name. And if you know him, then, then you are part of that plan. You are on the winning team. And, and therefore, you can go and you can boldly share Christ. Because you know, whatever opposition you may face, God 
always wins. That's what Philippians 1, 12 through 18 is about. Now, what I want to do as we look more deeply at this and look at how God always wins, I want to read the first section of the text once again, starting in verse 12. Paul writes this, I I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear that throughout the palace guard and uh, everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to share the gospel without fear. So Paul is saying, God always wins because he always overcomes. Even in difficult circumstances, God always overcomes. Paul is saying, I want you to know that even though I am imprisoned, that even so, this is causing the gospel to advance, even though I'm in prison, right? Now, when I first read that, I've read Paul's in prison. Uh, I, that seems counterintuitive to me, that the, the ministry continues, the gospel continues to advance. It seems like, oh, he's in prison. That would like slow things down. That would be an impediment to the gospel advancing. But right here, it says, it advances. And it says, in fact, other people begin to share the gospel because Paul is in prison. Seems counterintuitive, but that's what's happening here. Paul is saying, because he is in chains, other people are being emboldened to proclaim the name of Jesus, to go out and to do this, because they recognize that if Paul is willing to suffer, if Paul is willing to to undergo these difficulties, then, then the message must be true. The message must be worth it. And so then they're willing to go and do the same. Now, some time ago, I read a book about, about climbing Mount Everest. Anyone here climb Mount Everest? No, nor have I. Um, I read a book about climbing Mount Everest and, and what, that, what that takes and what that's like. Mount Everest, of course, is the, the highest mountain in the world. And it kind of got me thinking about what kind of people climb Mount Everest. And, and if you've ever you know, studied much about Mount Everest or, or read about what it takes to climb Mount Everest, then you know it's quite an ordeal, and it takes quite a lot to do it, you know. Um, and in fact, many people who are very determined to go and climb Mount Everest, they don't ever come home from it. They, they die in their attempt to climb Mount Everest. In fact, just this year in 2023, in the, the climbing season, I believe it's over now, but in this year's climbing season, 17 people lost their lives attempting to summit Mount Everest. And out of those 17 people, only seven of the bodies were even able to be recovered. The rest stayed on the mountain. And so it's a perilous trip to climb Mount Everest. And not only is there life-threatening danger, but if you were to say today, like, I want to climb Mount Everest, then you need to be prepared at the very, very least to pay $45,000. That's at the low end what it will cost you to make the expedition to take the time to climb Mount Everest. And so right there, that makes it inaccessible for many people. Although some people, this is a a trip of a lifetime, an expedition of a lifetime. They'll save that money and save that time to to do this. And and they're well aware of of the risks of, of, of freezing and of the high expense 
and of the, the chance that they may not even come home. And so think about that. What kind of person would climb Mount Everest when it entails such risk and such cost? I mean, on the one hand, I guess we could say, well, the kind of person that would want to climb Mount Everest is, you know, a crazy person, right? But actually, it's often this. It's people who understand the risk and they understand the difficulty and they understand the cost and they see others who have gone before them and who have made it to the summit and they say, if those people are willing to endure all of the things that you have to endure and to do the time, months of time, tens of thousands of dollars, risk of, of death and freezing, then there must be something worth it about getting to the summit. So I want to go. I want to do it. And they go. And that's, that's simply to say, that's what Paul's talking about. He's saying that as he was suffering for the gospel of Christ, that there were other people who saw his suffering. They understood. He, he was enduring difficulties on account of the gospel. And they, and they said, you know, if he believes it that deeply, if he is willing to suffer that greatly, then there must be something about this that is true and that is good. And I want to be a part of this. And I want to do like Paul does. I want to proclaim the name of Christ. And so the, the impact of Paul's suffering is multiplied by those who see and those who believe there must be something true and worthy about this, and I'm going to do it myself. In addition, Paul's attitude helped to continue to proclaim the name of Jesus because while he is in jail, as I mentioned earlier, that this whole letter oozes with joy, right? Paul is joyful. He is rejoicing even as he is enduring difficulty because, because he knows that he, he's a part of what God is doing. And so he can endure it joyfully. I mean, you think, think for a moment if Paul had not responded that way. Think for a moment if Paul had written to the Philippians and he had said something like, greetings from prison. It's really terrible here. The food is not very good. The bread is very hard. The, the guards are always cranky. It's cold. I don't like it. Right? It's kind of what you'd expect. It'd probably be a fair assessment uh, of being in prison. But that... I rejoice even as I am in chains on account of the gospel. Right? That's what he said. And, and he, he even says that, that the word began to spread among the, among, says the palace guard or the praetorian guard. This was an elite military unit, maybe of several thousand who, who were in Rome and they worked on behalf of the emperor. And, and it seems that at least some of them were, were in charge of guarding Paul as he was awaiting his trial before Caesar. And, and they saw Paul and they saw his conviction and they saw his rejoicing even in the face of suffering. And it began to spread like this guy may be crazy, but like he's on to something, right? He is joyful even in the midst of the suffering. He really believes these things and word spread among the Praetorian Guard and, and word even spread among other believers, right? Other believers begin to, to see this and they were emboldened by the gospel. You know, that this was not a waste of time. 
that, that Paul was willing to suffer and endure with rejoicing that there was something here. And Paul's not saying it's great to be in prison. I'm sure it's not great to be in prison. But instead, he says, even in these circumstances, God is at work and the gospel is advancing. Praise God. And he rejoices in these things. Now, that's certainly a principle we see in the text today and in the New Testament that God always wins. Another principle we see if we study the New Testament is this. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, where Paul writes, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is another principle of the New Testament. All who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted or will face difficulty or will face opposition. And so... If you and I, if we determine to live godly lives for Christ Jesus, to proclaim the name of Jesus, this is telling us that we will face difficulties. We will face opposition in doing this. Now, I want to be clear. We're not going to face, here in Guatemala, we're not going to face dire persecution if we proclaim the name of Jesus, of course, there, there are many places around the world where, where if one goes to proclaim the name of Jesus, if they're a foreigner, like at, at best, they might get kicked out of the country. At worst, you know, a foreigner or a national might be put in jail or, or even worse for proclaiming the name of Jesus. And so, you know, let us not take for granted the fact that here we, we can freely proclaim the name of Jesus. We can freely gather for worship. We can freely assemble. We don't have to worry about someone shutting us down. You know, it's true that in many places that, that is the case. And, and praise God, we don't face that kind of persecution. But, but I think what Paul is saying is this, is that, you know, if you go into the world, if you go to your extended family, if you go to your neighbors, if you go to your workplace, and if you proclaim the name of Jesus, and if you proclaim that, that it is only in the name of Jesus that, that eternal life may be found, what he's saying is this, that you will face opposition. Because that is not always going to be a popular message, even here. It's not always going to be a popular message. And Paul says, I know that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face opposition and will face difficulties. That's a principle of the New Testament. Nevertheless, in the face of that, Paul is also teaching us, even so, that God always wins. He always overcomes these things, that the gospel will go out, that God's plans will be accomplished. The question is not whether or not God will God will draw people to himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who will worship at his throne. The question is not if that will happen. The question is this, brothers and sisters, will we be a part of that? Will we be participants in what God is doing? What a privilege it is. What a privilege it is to proclaim the name of Jesus even in the face of opposition, trusting that God always wins.
So there was external opposition, but there was not only external opposition. In fact, um, God overcame that external opposition. God can also overcome, he can also overcome imperfect and sinful messengers. I'm going to read the second half of the text, starting in verse 15. Paul says, it's true. Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others go out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I have been put here, put in prison on account of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So Paul's saying there were two kinds of people who were going out and were proclaiming the name of Jesus because he was now in prison. He was unable to, to do things the way he normally did them. And so other people were going out and doing this. There was one group, he said, one group, they were supporters of Paul. They loved Paul and they loved Jesus. And they said, Paul can't do what he normally does. So we're going to get out there and we're going to kind of take his platform and we're going to continue his ministry on his account, right? We want to continue to proclaim the gospel since he cannot do that. They, these folks, they knew Paul and they loved Paul and they wanted to continue on his ministry. And then there was another group that Paul says they were preaching the gospel out of what he called selfish ambition. So these were people, they were not necessarily fans of Paul or didn't necessarily love Paul, but they knew who Paul was. They knew that Paul had a, a, a growing and a thriving ministry. They knew Paul had a platform. And so they see now Paul sidelined. And so they kind of see this like as an opportunity for themselves to build their own platform. And maybe some of those people that were following Paul will gather them in and we'll kind of, you know, pick up with, with uh, you know, with the momentum that Paul had, but, but they weren't doing it, you know, out of goodwill for Paul or love for Paul, but out of, out of selfish ambition to kind of build their own ministry. And, and they began to, to preach the gospel and gather people around themselves. And Paul's response was this, well, praise God, either way, praise God that Christ is being preached, that the gospel is continuing to advance, right? I mean, that's all he cared about. He could have been bitter that people were taking advantage of what he had been doing, but he, he, he said, it doesn't matter, right? Whatever their motive, whatever their motive is, he wasn't worried about it. He was simply worried that Jesus continued to be proclaimed. That was the only name he was worried about. He wasn't worried. Is it in the name of Paul? Who cares? It's the name of Jesus that matters. And so even rivalry, even division in the body could not stop the advance of the gospel. And if you, if you study biblical history and if you study church history from ancient times even, even to today, you'll see that God can use persecution. He can use division. He can use difficulty to continue to advance the gospel. Sometimes we see a ministry or church has a split in it. And, you know, and that's, that's always a really hard thing. But then you can also see, well, God can use that. Because now this group of believers, well, they've, they're covering more territory. There's some still here and there's some over there. And so the message is actually multiplied. So God can even use things that seem like opposition or that seem like difficulties to continue to advance his message. Praise God for that. You might be familiar with, with one of the most powerful 
missionary stories, really, of, of all time, I think, or at least of the 20th century. It's, it's the story of five missionaries who, in 1956, they went into the jungles of Ecuador, and including, including Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and some others, they, they took the gospel to a tribe in Ecuador called the Alcas. Now, the Alcas were given that name by a neighboring tribe, and the word Alca means savages. And so their neighboring, the neighboring tribe knew these were like savage, murderous people. The Alcas were known for revenge killings, and they would spear people to death for revenge killings. And so their, their name kind of characterized the, the kind of character that they had. And Jim Elliott and his companions were killed, bringing the gospel to the Alcas. Yet what happened? What happened? If you know the story, you know that Jim's wife, Elizabeth, and you know that Nate Saint's sister, Rachel, they went back and they continued to bring the gospel to the Alcas. And many believed, right? They, they brought this gospel. They preached the gospel of how Jesus Christ died innocently at the hands of wicked men to bring eternal life. And they preached this gospel and many began to believe and it had a powerful impact on the Alcas. Um, some of those who even killed the missionaries came to believe on Jesus Christ. And as a result, revenge killing stopped. And the Alcas became one of the only tribes of that area that, that began to, to thrive and to grow because they abandoned the violence of their ancestors on account of Jesus Christ. Do you know what else happened? Out of this tragic event, thousands upon thousands of, of young people, young adults, were, were motivated by, by Jim Elliott and his companions and what they had done and what had happened. And, and, and they went out. They became missionaries to foreign places to share the gospel, to take the name of Jesus to the nations. And that's what Paul's talking about. I mean, this all seems counterintuitive, right? That when, when Paul faces opposition and persecution, that then other people pick up the cause and get excited about the gospel. But that's what happened, right? You know, I mean, you might say, well, why do I want to pick a profession where like, I might be persecuted for what I believe? But, but what we're seeing is that the gospel is worth it. Because when you're with Jesus, you're on the winning team. God always wins. And I mean, I hear stories like that. I read powerful stories like that about Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and their companions. But, you know, I read that and I think, well, I don't know if that's me, right? And you may feel the same. Good for them. Good for those people that want to go to places like that. I'm not sure if that's for me. Yet every single one of us, every single one of us, every day, every single one of us, we have the responsibility and the duty to ask the question, will I be bold for Christ in my sphere of influence, in where I live, in the, the context of my life? Will I be bold for Jesus Christ or will I shrink back? Paul knows he's on the winning team. Paul knows that God always wins in the end, 
So even in the face of imprisonment, even in the face of rivalry, God always wins. That was true for Paul and brothers and sisters. That is true for you, and it is true for me even today. So, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to these realities that God always wins, that the gospel will advance even in the face of difficulty? Well, I would suggest there's two ways to respond to God's victory in Jesus Christ. The first is to rejoice, and the second is to pray. So the first, to rejoice. In the four chapters of the book of Philippians, the word rejoice is used, or the verb rejoice is used nine times. Rejoice, 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 rejoice. It's used nine times, and the noun joy is used five times. Joy, 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 joy. One of the major themes of the book of Philippians is that even in the face of difficulty, even in the face of suffering, even in the face of possible death, I can rejoice because I know God has the victory. No matter what's going on, I know God has the victory. I'm on the winning team. Maybe you know the name Michael Jordan. Anybody know Michael Jordan? Another name, Michael Jordan? Yeah. Michael Jordan, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Many people believe that his best game ever was in March of 1990. He played for the Chicago Bulls, and they were playing against the Cleveland Cavaliers. And, and in that game, March 1990, Michael Jordan, all by himself, scored 69 points. He scored 69 points in that game. During the game, there was also a rookie on the team, on the Bulls, and his name was Stacy King. He had just started playing professionally. And in that game, Stacey King scored one point. He got fouled and he shot a free throw. He got one point in the game. And of course, the Chicago Bulls won the game. Michael Jordan was on fire. There was no way they were going to lose. He carried the team through. Uh, and then after the game with a, a short interaction with the press corps, Stacey King made a statement and he said, I will always... I'll always remember the night that Michael Jordan and I combined for 70 points. <laughs> and I love that. I love the joy that he expressed. He just got to be like a little tiny part of this thing. I mean, he knew who had won that game, right? He was just kind of along for the ride. But imagine if you were playing in that game, right? And at some point in the game, it occurs to you, you know, maybe it's in the second half of the game, it occurs to you, Jordan's on fire. We are not going to lose this game. There is no way. This thing is in hand. I mean, how would that, you know, would that change the way that you played the game? Would you feel a little more free? Would you feel a little more confident in the way you played? Would you feel a little more bold? Would you feel a little more comfortable taking some risks in the game? Because you know, no matter what, you're going to win. Right? You got Jordan on your team. Would that change the way you play? I think it would. Right? I mean, if I were on that team with Michael Jordan, I knew we were going to win. I mean, I'd try to dunk it. I can't dunk. I can't jump that high. But I'd try because why not? Right? We're going to win. We're on the team with Jordan. He's scoring 69 points. And that's what Paul is saying. You are on the team with the creator of the universe with the God who always wins. 
who has defeated sin, Satan, death, and hell. You can't lose. And if you were to believe that, if you were to really believe that and to internalize that, you know, how might that change the way that you behave? The way that you proclaim the name of Jesus? Might you do it with a little more boldness? Might you be willing to take a few more risks? Because you know you can't lose. You're going to win the game. So how do we respond to these truths? The victory of Christ, the victory that God has in Christ. We, we rejoice. And finally, we pray. And I want to challenge you today to pray. I want to challenge you to think. You know, think of one person. One person, an actual person, you know, with an actual name. Maybe they're a coworker. Maybe they're a fam- extended family member. Maybe they're a neighbor. I don't know. Remember that person. Pray regularly for that person. And think of a place. Think of a place, right? It could be a place. It could be a workplace. It could be a home. It could be an institution. It could be a, a city, a country, a region of the world. Think of a place. So think of a person. And think of a place. And this week, every day, begin to pray specifically for that person and that place. And that the gospel of Jesus might advance in that place and in that person's life. Pray for them regularly and specifically that God's purposes will be accomplished through Jesus Christ in that person and in that place. We respond to these truths today by rejoicing, by rejoicing and by praying.